Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Tonight, talking about preoccupation. And uh, when I say preoccupation, there's uh, obviously it's a word that denotes a lot of different uh, possibilities presents in different ways. Ide fix, fixed idea, uh, obsessive ideation, intrusive thoughts, and so forth. There's different underlying causes for preoccupation. Uh, I'm not going to be talking tonight about the kind of repetitive thought that's associated with neurological disorders, of which there are some forms of preoccupation. There's a region in our brain called the uh, striatum. The striatum is essentially the automatic transmission of the brain. It's a terrible metaphor, but what it does is it generates certain thoughts and behaviors. So uh, the striatum uh, when it's using a part of it called the pudumen, it activates uh, habitual behaviors. Walking, sitting up out of a chair, sitting down into a chair, tying your shoes, brushing your teeth. All of those habitual behaviors are initiated by the pudumen, and then it, it's connected to a part called the basal ganglia, which helps you actually act those out. When people have a disruption of the pudumen, they get a very familiar syndrome known as Tourette's, where they literally start to have uh, actions that are initiated that are not, uh, but actually don't have any base value to them. So the other part of the striatum is the caudate nucleus, and that's the part of habitual or the automatic transmission that initiates thoughts. And we have certain kinds of thoughts during the course of our days that are initiated and that help us, like, oh, have I remembered to do this? Have I remembered to check my email? Have I remembered to, uh, I don't know, pay my bills? Have I remembered to do such and such? So those initiated thoughts can be useful, but if you have a disruption to the caudate nucleus, it can activate seemingly repetitive, unwanted, intrusive thoughts to be activated, and that's obviously um, the only way that people can be treated in that condition. Generally, talk therapy and doesn't work. Generally, what they have to go on is large doses of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, serotonin uh, inhibits the caudate nucleus, so it essentially diminishes a lot of those thoughts. Um, sometimes people have an insight when when they have repetitive ideations that they realize that the thoughts are essentially delusional, that don't actually represent something of value, sometimes they don't, um, but I'm not going to be talking about uh, any Uh, repetitive thinking that's due to neurobiological deficiencies or dysfunction. I'm going to be talking tonight about 
preoccupation in relationships when we think a lot about someone who uh, either we've been in a relationship with or we've been abandoned by. So I'm going to be talking about largely about negative preoccupation, not the kind of positive re preoccupation where you meet someone, you have an excited crush, and you think a lot about them because uh, it's a little bit like Christmas for a child, and the anticipation and the tendency to project into the future, and the region of your brain, the default mode operation of your ventral medial wants to just, because something new is in your life, wants to figure out the rest of your life. No, I'm not going to be talking about that. I'm going to be talking about just don't do that. It's a bad idea. <laughs> if you meet someone and you like them, try not to preoccupy, which means think about them when they're not there. Why? There's a lot of good reasons. One is that you'll be projecting past relationships onto them. You'll be projecting expectations. And all of our expectations are based on past experiences. The brain doesn't have any other expectations other than what we've experienced in our life previously. So every time we project or fantasize about someone, what we are doing is essentially projecting onto them the experiences at some point we've had in the past. So we don't want to do that. Also, if you meet someone, you're really excited by them and you think a lot about them, uh, what happens is you start having a lot of uh, essentially interactions that are not based on actually anything that's actually occurred in reality. And that can also be problematic to say the least and actually discerning whether the person's attachment is suitable for your own. So I'm going to be talking about negative preoccupation when we have been disappointed uh, or someone is not available when our needs are not being met. And this doesn't have to be necessarily a romantic relationship. It could be with a friend or it could be with someone uh, who's a roommate. It could be with a work colleague. It could be with anyone in our life that has uh, essentially uh, created uh, a series of intrusive ideations. So uh, to explain, one, the underlying nature of preoccupation and why we uh, wind up very often in relationships that we become preoccupied by, I'm going to look at the work today of someone I haven't mentioned too much in the past. Um, along with teaching the Dharma, I generally do integrate a lot of uh, 20th century psychologists, because that's my background too. And uh, tonight I'm going to be talking about a guy named Ronald Fairburn, who actually in the 1940s was a very important uh, uh, object relations therapist. Object means your attachment to people, basically, in psychology. So um, Fairburn started writing uh, or making his biggest, not writing, he started writing earlier, but his biggest contribution started in the 1940s during World War II. He worked a lot with children who had been separated by their parents, some of which had, were neglected by parents who uh, were otherwise focused on the war. Some had been completely abandoned. 
Some have been actually abused by parents who, due to war trauma, have taken their trauma out on their children. And so one of the things that Fairburn noted was, to his surprise, how dedicated the children of abusive, neglected, abandoning, or unavailable parents would remain to their parents, even though their parents had um, weren't available, the child would maintain a ongoing loyalty and attachment to these figures. And um, another thing that Fairburn noted in his uh, therapy with adults is that many of them had had childhoods where there was uh, unavailable caregivers or caregivers who um, uh, sometimes were capable of bestowing attention and all the basic attachment needs, but sometimes were not. So they were unreliable. So Fairburn put the two together, working with the children and his work with adults, and he came up with a theory which is that um, in childhood, when a parent is available, the child doesn't uh, doesn't have to think too much about the parent because they're actually there. The parent, the child, doesn't have to fantasize or fixate on the parent. The child has a secure base, and the child expects love and care, and it doesn't have to do put any effort into the relationship. So the child feels secure. And that's not a deeply emotional experience. It's just a feeling of security that the child can relax into. But suppose you're a child and there's significant periods of time when your parent isn't available or they're emotionally unsafe or they're abandoning. Then what happens is the child compensates for the disappearance or the uns for the the lack, of, the lack of presence by fantasizing about the unavailable parent. So the child starts fantasizing, fixating, the child starts compensating for this lack. And then over time, this action of thinking and fantasizing becomes the dominant form of the relationship. And then as these children grow up, they become addicted to that very kind of relationship where what makes sense to their uh, defense mechanisms, what makes sense to them unconsciously is I connect with people who are not reliable and the way I compensate for their lack of presence is by fixating on the people in my life who represent in adult life, the unavailable parent. That's generally a romantic partner, but it can be other people as well. So in Fairburn's language, what we do is we become addicted to the what he calls the bad father or the bad mother, not the good mother or the good father. We all have parents, hopefully, that have a mixture of both, but to the degree that there's unreliability, people are far more likely believe it or not, oddly as it is, we're far more likely to adapt and become emotionally formed in our attachment style by the negative experiences, not the positive. Because again, during positive experiences, the child doesn't have to do anything, so it's not an overtly uh, neurally ingraining. But to the degree that the child has to make up for the unavailable parent, the child has to constantly 
think and fantasize and make up for the deficits. And so that child becomes used to the act of constantly monitoring or constantly thinking or fantasizing about the unavailable. So um, another way of putting this in today's contemporary uh, world of neuropsychology, there's a book, uh, a clinical book, on Neurobiology Essentials for Clinicians, which I have for you read, <laughs> so that you do not have to. I've actually read uh, Shores, also he wrote Affect Regulation, uh, Affect, uh, Affect Regulations Volume 1 and 2, which are like each like 500 pages. So uh, Shores Neurobiology Essential for Clinicians, states become traits with enough frequency a state, i.e. being left alone or being abused, can become a trait which patterns the way we manage our emotions and ingrains the neurocircuitry of the brain and becomes a pattern that is unconscious but we essentially gravitate towards. So we unconsciously recreate, sadly enough, very often the worst hits of childhood. Now, this doesn't happen with everyone and where there's and it, can, it doesn't necessarily mean that parents are the ones that are unavailable. Any significant relationship where there's a, a, a pattern of unreliability over time can ingrain this preoccupying uh, or this uh, constant hypervigilance tendency. So it can become by adult life if we are prone to being when we're in relationships or if we're prone to um, thinking a lot of, and we're playing in our minds our disappointments or trying to figure out why someone is not present or trying to constantly uh, unpack them to have a better sense of what's going on this uh, tendency to uh, to focus on someone who's not available, which is an, uh, an, an essentially a trait developed from early abandonments, then uh, it can be like an addiction. And I'm not using that term lightly. I've actually worked with many people in counseling who are in SLAA and uh, Al-Anon, and many report that when they are triggered into a state of ongoing, repetitive, intrusive ideations about a figure that's disappointing them, that it can be like a heroin addiction. It can be like this thing where uh, not only just the thought, but constantly checking the phone for a message, constantly checking Facebook for uh, which is now called Facebook stalking or internet stalking, uh, constantly uh, asking about uh, people who disappointed us with uh, people that we know in common. Uh, this kind of uh, hypervigilance uh, has a lot of different uh, long-term negative results. The uh, first is obviously that it neurally re-ingrains the pattern of seeking and being fixated on people who are not meeting our needs. 
rather than focusing our attention on people who are. Just like the child who doesn't ingrain and doesn't really care about the times when the parent is available or doesn't, uh, doesn't seek people who uh, recreated times of secure attachment, we, the more we become uh, prone to um, obsessive ideations about someone, we're only deeper ingraining that tendency to believe that relationships are not about presence and about getting our needs met and about having attachment needs through nonverbal communication uh, established. We begin to associate relationships with essentially abandonment or uh, poor attachment. Uh, two, obviously it creates a delusion. The delusion, when we become preoccupied with someone, invariably I found in counseling that people fall into this putting all their eggs in one basket mode where they believe only one person, the person that they're preoccupied with, can make them happy. And that's a significant delusion because, of course, that's not true. That's an idea that there's only one person out there that can, that can really understand me or that I really will fit with or that is the magic one. It's something that's been foisted us on us by a mischievous and evil Hollywood. <laughs> uh, where all these romantic comedies, which we've endured, I mean, they, they can be, be likable, but they generally have, I don't know, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks spending <laughs> an hour and a half away from each other in various different scenarios until they magically stumble upon each other and then they fall into each other's arms. And so there's this idea that uh, there's only if we have to get it right with this one person because this one person reminds us unconsciously of some of the attributes of an early attachment structure and that if we don't make it work if we don't fantasize then we'll never be happy and quite frankly that's bullshit I mean I can assure you that um, Human beings all have variations of the same underlying attachment need, we, we, needs. We know from the work of Brown and Elliot and Omri Gilead and Shore and so forth that all human beings basically need to feel safe, which means we want to be with people who won't abandon or go away, who won't sometimes be there and then not. We all want to feel seen and important in the eyes of someone else. We all want to feel soothed when we're in that person's presence. And we all want to feel appreciated that our uh, steps forward in life, that the risks we take, that just the effort we put in to show up for life is noted and uh, encouraged by someone else. So those are the four, found, the four factors of secure attachment. And we, People as far apart as Heinz Koa of self-psychology to attachment theorists to object relationships have all found variations of those same things. And in Buddhism we find those same things that we need. Just the feeling of it being important, seen, soothed, and appreciated. So uh, there's not only one person who can give that to you. That's just not true. 
there's always uh, a lot of people who can meet our course our core attachment needs we just have to dislodge the fixation on people who are unavailable friends there are other friends that we can have who can meet those needs as well um, while we are preoccupied we are engaging our sympathetic nervous system it's a form of hypervigilance and what it means is that your uh, HBA axis, your uh, hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal glands will be secreting cortisol and that will be diminishing your white blood cells, your T cells, it will overproduce red blood cells, it will lead to arteriosclerosis and you'll find that when you're preoccupied if you check that the muscles in your stomach will constantly be tight and will be you know, contracted because when we're in the sympathetic nervous system, uh, we unconsciously expect to be attacked. We don't feel safe, and so that contracts the muscles there, sends the blood out to the limbs, protects the organs, and so forth. So, an ongoing preoccupation while we're thinking about someone else, we're actually systemically physiologically damaging our immune system. Um, when people are preoccupied, they tend to, their connections with support groups and friends tend to diminish because we become uh, essentially dissatisfied with the attention and security provided by others. And of course, human beings require a robust degree of friendships and interaction with support for us to function and to establish homeostasis and well-being. Um, our entire species evolutionary history was spent in small groups of other adults and that's what structured our brain and that's what activates positive well-being is being connected with other people in a meaningful way and if we allow our attentions to simply funnel down to being fixated on one person, it's exceedingly self-diminishing. And lastly, in intensive, I could go on and on and on with a negative, I'm just trying to sell the idea that this is not good. <laughs> um, so uh, it intensifies avoidance coping. The people I know who are most prone to uh, not uh, to fixating on unavailable or people who are not meeting their needs or disappointments. These are people who will use those fixations to avoid tasks and, in, and activities that are necessary but don't feel necessarily good while we do them. Things like, oh, I don't like my job, I should try to find a new job, that kind of sucks, nobody likes doing that, nobody likes you know, reaching out, uh, you know, connecting with people, going on interviews, putting together resumes. So, to the degree that that's unpleasant and might entail rejection, we'll avoid it. And what more uh, available and efficient and convenient way than if we're already preoccupied with someone or something? Um, so, uh, as well, Doing art, being creative, that's very risky. If we have any degree of core shame 
we will do anything we can to avoid creating, writing, producing our art because that feels it could entail rejection. And so if we have something that's conveniently there to preoccupy ourselves with, we'll avoid uh, self-actualization. So before we jump into what the, uh, uh, the actual meditation we'll be doing, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Buddha's perspective on preoccupation so that that's going to set up the practice that we're going to do to address it. In the Dharma, the Buddha noted that there's an early experience in life that forms or phase Nama Rupa, where a proto-personality is established. And this is something that happens in, in the Paticca Samuppada, the Buddha notes almost directly after birth. So he's, the Buddha, I believe, is referring to the core attachment period in childhood between six months and two years. And everything he says about this fits in nicely with our understanding of attachment theory. He notes that this proto-personality conditions how we respond to events in our life in our adult years. And that this underlying proto-personality known as Nama Rupa essentially in time will create strong feelings in certain situations. So in situations where in the past, in childhood, we felt unsafe. In adult life, if we encounter similar situations, similar events, we will have strong feelings. And then when these strong feelings known as Dukkha Vedana occur, it creates an underlying craving to make the feelings go away. And the most common ways we do that try to get rid of awareness of this, these uncomfortable physiological feelings is through clinging to either things that create short-term pleasures, like eating food, watching television, smoking pot, taking drugs, drinking, shopping, you know, clicking by on Amazon, uh, all of these things that raise the dopamine levels in the left hemisphere for a short period of time. So that's one way. A second way is we engage in habitual behaviors, sometimes things like going to the gym or compulsively doing yoga, or, or some people even use meditation as a way to escape, as a spiritual bypass. But the most common way that we repress awareness of our negative feelings when uh, something creates a sense of unease is the Buddha said by thinking a repetitive thought, Devi Upadana. We cling to a thought, we repeat it, we rehash it in our mind, and the more that happens, the more we become unaware of the underlying physiological feelings. And this fits in really nicely with the attachment theories of Fairburn, because all of the attachment theorists noted that so much of the early wounds in childhood, the abandonments that create this tendency are activated through physiological tension and stress, somatic markers as they're known. So the key in the Dharma is to not abandon the feelings, to return awareness again and again to the underlying somatic experience 
and not allow the preoccupying thought to, to essentially distract us from the felt experience, which is the most important quality at any time. I'll read you uh, one of the things the Buddha said. When a common individual experiences a painful feeling, they resist it, and they do that by worrying, fretting, and thinking. What was once a bodily experience now becomes a mental one. Thus two kinds of pains are experienced at the same time. When a painful feeling arises, however, in a wise practitioner, they reflect this painful feeling, its condition, it arises based on other previous events and it's impermanent. One should ask by what is this feeling conditioned? I, we should try to find out what is in there, why this feeling and why this preoccupation is so um, essentially ingrained in us. So I've developed a uh, meditation that I use very often in counseling and um, that's addressed to, as a way to both diminish preoccupation but also to find out what is triggering preoccupation in the first place. So in this practice what we do is, one, whenever an image or a thought about someone comes up, especially in this case a negative thought, we first welcome it. We say hello. Oh, hi, Mark, or you know, <laughs> Sarah, or Fritz. I don't know why I say Fritz. <laughs> hi, Fritz. And then, uh, then what we do is we bring our attention into our body and we find the area of contraction or tension or what's called somatic holding in the front of our bodies. This is because the vagal vagus nerve is the most likely area of the body to activate what's called somatic markers that essentially send messages to us that, oh, this person reminds me of good old dad or whatever. So there will be an underlying physiological tension that's also synonymous with hypervigilance. Generally, I find it'll be either in a tight stomach or a hollowness in the chest or a feeling of a light strangulation in the throat or a sadness, a heaviness behind the eyes, or maybe the jaw will become clenched or the shoulders will tense and start pulling forward. But there's always when we're preoccupied, there's always an underlying what the Buddha called Dukkha Vedana. There's always this, this foundation of physiological stress. Then what we do is while we pay attention to this area, we literally, and this is going to sound really weird, but here we go. What I instruct people to do is ask, when have I felt this way before? Who have I felt this way before? And so we just allow our mind to free associate while we feel the physiological tension. And we begin to open up to previous relationships or previous individuals that are associated with the same feelings of abandonment, the same feelings of unsafety, the same feelings of rejection, the same feelings of disappointment. Then in the future, whenever after we come in contact with some people that are have conditioned our preoccupation, that are 
also associated with this emotional state, then in the future, whenever we think about our current preoccupation, the person who's not available, the roommate who's abandoned us, the, the work colleague who's frustrating us, whatever, the family member who is constantly not meeting our needs, what we do is we bring to mind all of the people that have actually created the same feelings in the past. And when we do that, it has this magical ability to undermine the, all the ongoing thoughts. Because the more your left hemisphere realizes it's not about this new person, that this preoccupation has actually been conditioned by an entire history of abandonments, then, interestingly enough, the, the desire to think about and fixate on the new person is, is alleviated. I know it sounds weird and it's hard to grasp, but we're going to put it into practice and hopefully, uh, as I lead you through it, uh, that it will make more sense. So, find a really comfortable seated position. Just allow yourself to come into the most comfortable posture. Don't, if you have any image of what a meditator should look like, crumple that image up in your mind and throw it into your mind's trash bags. <laughs> Never let an image or an idea of what a good posture looks like influence you. Just feel into your body and try to find, using the actual sensations there, how to align your body. And most important, what I ask is take your, imagine that you could put your arm or your hand beneath your chin and just lift it up so it's like you're looking at, you're seated, but you're looking at a tall building in the distance. So your head is tilted slightly more upwards than you would generally keep it. Like it's the first warm day of spring and you're sitting outside and you're soaking in the sun. And that's the single only effort that I often put into meditation. And we do that because if the head starts to droop in front of the chest, it actually will contract the vagal vagus nerve and it will undo all of the benefits of meditating, which is one, bringing your body back into a parasympathetic rest and digest. If you, your head drifts in front, your shoulders start floating in front of your body and your chest contracts, that actually puts you in a defensive posture. Relax the body. So take a full in-breath and while you do that, just squinch all the muscles in the face, clenching the jaw, etc. Making an ugly little pinched face, pinched nose, furrowed brow. And then as you breathe out, release all the muscles in your face. Unclench the jaw, unfurrow the forehead, and uh, just try to imagine that your eyes are like floating in two sensory deprivation tanks, and so they're no longer keeping track of anything. 
they are just two ping pong balls bobbing in water, but they're not keeping track or looking around or they're settling. And uh, so another full in-breath and lifting the shoulders up, really high, like you're trying to reach above your head with them. And then as you start to breathe out, rotate the shoulders back and drop the shoulders. So well, arms now are like two lifeless limbs hanging from the torso. and. The shoulders are pulled back so the chest is really open and that should help again inform the limbic structure that we are safe because when we're not safe we tend to contract. And then for our third breath just imagine that your belly is pulling in the breath so your belly's ballooning outwards, it's really round, doing everything that we've trained ourselves not to do. And then as you release the out-breath slowly through the mouth, soften the belly. Abdominal breathing where we breathe in and expand the belly and then we release and soften the belly is a wonderful way to tone the vagal break. And of course, we've talked about how much preoccupation and hypervigilance are associated with a clenched stomach. So what we're gonna be doing is softening. So when you breathe in, imagine your belly, or actually see if you can, slightly expand your belly and then as you breathe out, just relax it, just release it. And we're going to incline the exhalations to be as long as possible. The longer the exhalation, the likelier you'll return to rest and digest. Your out-breath engages your parasympathetic system and it relaxes you. So try to make your out-breath twice as long as you're in. And now bring all the senses that are available to us when we've closed our eyes and are no longer interested in sight. Bring all of your attention to the senses of feeling into your body, interoception, and sound, hearing. Let those two senses become far more crisp and vivid and foregrounded in your awareness. Cultivating the state of mind where, imagine you've gone on vacation, it's the first day of vacation, and you've just done a wonderful workout by the ocean, and now you settle down into a blanket, 
And you're just feeling the sun hit your body. You're feeling your body relax. You're feeling your breath. You're hearing the sounds of the world around you and you're not resisting anything. You've got nowhere to go. And all the unresolved issues of your life are not right now pertinent. All we want to do is just totally land in this moment, letting go of all that sense that we have to get anything done. This is one of those sacred moments in life where we can truly land in our life without our minds being somewhere else. to make this moment really sacred each time the thoughts try to pull you away and they will for a short period just keep when you realize that you've abandoned your experience you've abandoned your present just note what kind of thought pulls you away don't add any frustration, there's nothing bad about it or wrong about it. In fact, every time you wake up from a thought, it's another opportunity to ingrain your way back home to the body, to sounds, to feelings. So each time you're lost in thought, just find your breath, find the sounds around you. Just release back into this expansive moment, present moment, which is the only time you'll ever be able to achieve any kind of liberation. That's right now.
So let's take a few more breaths into our abdominal area and just expanding the breath with the, expanding the belly with the in-breath and then softening with the out. Receiving each breath with a releasing, opening belly and then allowing each breath to be released with this very softening, soothing, comforting Take a moment just to note how your body feels right now. Does your, how does your stomach feel? Does it feel a little more relaxed or does it, does it feel tight still? Your chest, does it feel open or tight or hollow? Contracted? Does the breath feel good in it? Noticing the feelings of the front of the throat, does it, that area feel open or slightly? Do the muscles feel there? Do they feel slightly strangled, cut off? Do the shoulders feel like they're Contracted forward or relaxed. How about the muscles in the face? Do the eyes feel still released or do they have a sense of like they're bouncing back, like they're following something in the world, or does the, furrow, the forehead feel furrowed, or the jaw clenched or released? Just get a general sense of how you feel, in the front of your body especially. And now what I'd like is for you to bring to mind someone that either has been on your mind frequently lately or in the past, someone who has triggered preoccupation. And obviously for this exercise, we'll be using someone that is associated with negative preoccupation. trying to figure out why they behaved the way they did or just angrily replaying the events in our mind or imagine preparing what we'd say to this person if we encountered them. Whatever form or shape the occupation takes, So 
sometimes it could be looking repeatedly at a phone for a text message or looking at a Facebook profile or an Instagram feed. Just bring this person to mind and even slightly instigate the story of the kind of thinking that normally is accompanied by this intrusive thought. The kind of sometimes how dare they kind of thinking. And then once you've found the right person and the right thought that tends to replay in your mind, pull your awareness away and bring it down back to the area of your body. We just surveyed the front of your body, starting from your belly, slowly up through your chest, to the throat, to the face, and see if you can find some subtle tightening, contraction, some change that's occurred when you brought this individual to mind. We want to locate the somatic underpinnings, which is the way our unconscious speaks to us through the body. Find the feelings of abandonment or disappointment or anger, betrayal, in your body. It might be subtle. It might be as subtle as a subtle heaviness behind the eyes or a subtle inclination to act or a feeling of just a subtle shift in the shoulders. Or for some, it might be very overt, like suddenly the stomach muscles feel tight, or the jaw locked and clenched. Just find what the Buddha called the Vedana, the felt experience. you've located something that feels a little akin to a somatic marker, a physical underpinning that correlates with the repetitive thought that you put aside. What I'd like you to do is ask the simple question, when have I felt this way before? Or about whom have I felt this way before? And just open your mind to whoever rises up from your unconscious. Don't overthink it. Don't try to be logical. Don't try to figure it out. Just see if some person, no matter how illogical, no matter how unlikely, from your past or even from your present arises from the deep recesses of your non-conscious 
memory and presents. Again, no matter how unlikely or tenuous or strange the connection, don't, don't overthink it. Just whoever is associated with this feeling, bring their image to mind or their name to mind. And then all we do, lastly, while you still feel the feeling of tension or slight contraction, jump in your mind back and forth between the person you've been preoccupied with recently to this older figure we've just found an association with. Or what you can do is hold both in your mind's eye. The person who's recently disappointed us, the person whose face or name is also associated with that same feeling of disappointment. Showing your conscious mind that these feelings and this preoccupation are not new. They're not even about this new person. They're about an entire history of abandonments, attachment wounds, losses, not getting our needs met. put aside the two images that you found, the older association, just put away the images, bring into your mind's eye a sense of what the room around you looks like while feeling any feelings that remain in your body. And very, very slowly open your, your eyes just enough to see the ground in front of you and just integrate sight into your awareness in such a way that it doesn't push to the side awareness of how you feel in your body and what the sounds around you are like. You don't want sight to dominate. You want sight to share your mind with these other sensations.
So before I go to the questions, uh, dialogue, I just wanted to note that uh, it's also, if we find ourselves at a point in our life where we are really preoccupied with an important figure in our life, it's really very useful to find support with other people who are going through the same. And so groups such as SLAA or Al-Anon are uh, invaluable resources to help support us because no matter what emotional event or uh, uh, ongoing mental challenge we have in life, being around other people who are uh, encountering or working through the same challenges is such a benefit. It normalizes and removes the sense that we're alone and it's really the most important step we can do on our behalf. 